0: I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse.
1: Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn.
0: He's looking at you, kid. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Oh, I've been thinking. Oh, what do you want to do there for? Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. They call me Mr. Tibbs.
1: Welcome to 99 Years 100 Films, the podcast where we look at every winner of the Best Picture Academy Award in release order, see why the film is so highly regarded. This time we are looking at Mrs. Miniver. So this is one from 1942. And when I say we, I mean myself, Blaine Dowler, and my ever-present co-host, Trey Hooks.
0: Good morning, everyone.
1: So this is a film that was released in, like we said, 1942. It is directed by William Wyler, who was one of the more nominated directors in Academy Award history. It stars Greer Garson as the title Mrs. Miniver. Walter Pigeon is her husband Clem Miniver. Teresa Wright, her daughter-in-law Carol Belden. May Wittie, who is her daughter-in-law's grandmother. Lady Belden as Dame May Whitty, Reginald Oland as Fowey. Henry Travers as Ballard. Richard Ney as Vin Miniver. And there are a number of others, but I think those are the key ones for now. And the writing credits are shared by Arthur Wimpris, George Frochel, James Hilton, and Claudine West for the screenplay, and based on the book by John Struther. And the original release date, at least for a wide release, was uh, July 22nd, 1942. That was the wide release and the Los Angeles release. Although it had previously screened in New York on June 4th.
0: This is our first film to use World War II as a backdrop. We've had films that during wartime before that we've covered, but up until now it's been either the Civil War or World War I.
1: Yeah, well, it's one of the few that was actually made after the war started. I mean, it, we said it was released in 1942, so this was released only seven months after the United States joined the war effort. The war had been a little over two years in the rest of the world. I'm fairly certain it was a British novel. It's certainly a British setting for the, this film. So the war had been raging there. And because of those timelines, I wonder if this movie was greenlit based on that novel before they were even certain that America would be part of the war.
0: I, I think it was. I, I, I do know that the war extended the production slightly. There were modifications made to the script once. The U.S. went from neutral to on the side of the Allies.
1: But in terms of the plot, this is another family-focused film. So it opens, you know, when people are debating whether or not there's going to be war. We've got a British family whose son comes back from Oxford for a time, filled with all sorts of ideas for how he's going to change the world and break the evils of classism and so forth. And Well, I guess not so much ideas for how he's going to change the world, but ideas for what needs to be changed. And then the granddaughter of one of the most classist, upper-class women in the area comes by to ask them basically to talk to a friend of Mrs. Miniver, who has named a gorgeous rose after her, not to enter his rose in a local flower competition because her grandmother likes to win that contest and has every year for 30 years without opposition. So Mrs. Miniver's son and the granddaughter, Lady Belford, they, or Carol Belford, have a bit of a debate about this, and Carol actually holds her own quite well and puts him in his place, saying, okay, you talk big, but what are you actually doing? Here's things I'm doing to help the poor. What actions have you taken, or is this all just words? And that actually eventually leads to a romance between those two. When war breaks out, he chooses to serve in the RAF. Mr. Miniver, Clem, chooses to join the local patrols. I don't know if it was a choice or conscription, but even if he was told to, he he has no problems doing it. He's, he sees it as his duty. And as things go on, they're involved in the rescue at Dunkirk. So Carol Belford and Vin Miniver get married. But ultimately, the war does take its toll. And I don't know, should we spoil the last five to ten minutes here?
0: Uh,
1: I think we should. Yeah, it'll be hard to discuss the movie without doing it. We see a few changes in the characters as part of their growth arc. First of all, Lady Belford is told that she wins the Rose competition, but because of her position, she announces the winners, and she announces herself as the second-place winner and gives Mr. Ballard the win less than an hour before the town is attacked, and Mr. Ballard does not survive the attack. I think more impactfully for the audience, partly because we're witnesses, Mrs. Miniver and her daughter-in-law, Carol, are in the outskirts of town, and they're trying to find secure and safety. And one of the German planes, at least we assume it's German, it frankly may not have been, because there was a dogfight above the town. When it does the strafing run, Carol is mortally wounded. So the son that they were worried about the entire time, because he was serving the RAF, comes through okay. It's his wife that loses her life. And this comes through in the the final service, when you know the, the local vicar in a ruined church, is saying, you know, we need to be strong. We need to fight for this country and for the freedom of the world. And there's Lady Belford alone in her box, and Vin goes over and joins her and is welcomed for doing so, which was quite the opposite of the reaction she had initially when he started courting her granddaughter. Did I miss anything you consider important there, Trey?
0: We could talk a little bit about it more later. It's worth noting, Mrs. Minifer has an encounter with a downed German pilot. Yes,
1: when she was home alone, an escaped German pilot did come in and hold her at gunpoint for a time until she manages to disarm him and call the police, partly because his own injuries caused him to pass out. So she more took advantage of an opportunity than created the opportunity. But yeah, it's still much more proactive than a lot of female characters were allowed to be in this era of Hollywood.
0: There is real menace to it. They don't play a significant role, but the Miniverse have three children. So the two youngest children were still upstairs asleep when the pilot broke in. So there was that constant threat of my children are upstairs.
1: Yeah, but again, the, the two youngest children when they're on screen, they're almost treated as comic relief for saying the cutesy little things that kids say, like, you know, when the courtship was early, are you going to marry her? And things like that. Right. So they are very young, probably, what, five and younger? Something in that neighborhood? So what was your history with this film? Had you seen it
0: before? This is one of those films that I hadn't seen before, but I had obviously heard about. I think I mentioned... In a previous episode, uh, in my my high school days, I worked at Suncoast Motion Picture Company, which was a video retailer, and they had a quiz that you had to take when you were hired. And I specifically remember what was the best film of 1942 being a question on that quiz. So (laughs) um, my exposure to it goes uh, that far back, but this is the first time I had actually seen it.
1: It's the same for me, and uh, we've seen this before, looking at the more like this section on the IMDb that recommends up to 12 movies, six at a time. All 12 recommended like this are Best Picture winners from the 30s, 40s, and 50s. So I think it is very much like our last outing in that sense, where, yeah, we are seeing a lot of movies here that are remembered mostly for winning Best Picture. In this case, unlike some of the past films where... I think they are remembered solely for that. I think it's just remembered best for that, and not only for that, because we do have some Oscar-worthy performances. There is definitely something to be said about the class structure that still exists today to a lesser degree. There's even something to be said about the irony of Vin going on about the evils of classism as he is returned home to where the maid and cook are preparing his dinner and his room for the night. Right. So he he's not exactly in the lowest class, although he talks as though he is. So there is some detachment on his part as well. But it it is just jigglingly enjoyable.
0: You have that growing change in class at the time of it. It's the rise of the middle class. So it's not just the lords and ladies and everyone else. It's the it's the lords and ladies the educated middle class, and then what's perceived to be the uneducated lower class.
1: Yeah, or the the vassals or peasants, as they referred to during this film. But yeah, it is different. And I could see why this would have connected so strongly with audiences, because this would have come out, like we said, early in America's involvement in the war, about halfway through the war, as far as Europe was concerned. So this would have resonated. And that is one of the... The nice things about it like you said they adjusted the scripts but there's there are confident characters on both sides of the war so the film was not saying this is the side that's going to win although the final message is these are some things we need to do to make sure that our side wins but nothing is treated as certainty
0: it's not the type of propaganda war film that necessarily villainizes the other uh, side, so in, in preparation for this, I had also watched the life and death of Colonel blimp in which they constantly hit upon these are the horrible things that Nazis do here's why Nazis are so bad here's why we should all dislike Nazis y- you don't have that in this film there's not uh, there's not slurs cast against Nazis it's just more shown they are bad because these are the repercussions of their actions
1: yeah it, it you see them very much as the antagonists but they there's no debate about their philosophy it's just well the war exists and the focus is more on how this family deals with the fact that they have to put themselves at risk and seeing the reaction of the parents as their son goes off to fight in the raf seeing mrs miniver's reaction when her son and husband have been gone during the events at Dunkirk. And she doesn't know where they've gone. She doesn't know why they're gone. She just knows everyone with a boat was called out to sea. And that was five days ago. And no one's heard from any of them since. So we see these stresses and the impact of war at home. But yeah, there's there's no vilification of the other side. One of the Germans is definitely the antagonist. And he does talk about how yeah, we are going to march over Europe. He, that's the closest it comes when one that one particular German seems to take delight in how efficiently they bombed some other cities and killed hundreds of thousands of people. But it's not nearly as extreme as some of the contemporary films, or even those before and after. So I wouldn't because of that scene I wouldn't think it's quite as level as All Quiet on the Western Front was, where we had an American-made movie Told from the perspective of the Germans. So that actually came out quite level. That might be the most level war film I've ever seen. But this would be second, I would say.
0: I would agree. I want to talk about the, the cast a little bit. We, we talked about Walter Pigeon and some in our previous episode when we covered how green was my valley. Here he's front and center as probably the lead supporting character. Because this is definitely Mrs. Miniver's movie. I wanted to know what your impressions were of Greer Garson. I was
1: actually quite impressed. And it's funny, I've I've heard her name through my life. The name is familiar, but I couldn't, once I saw her, there was no recognition. I couldn't firmly pin down any other Greer Garson movie I'd ever seen. But I, I think she, she portrayed this very naturally. It's like James Garner used to say, the sign of a great actor is you can never catch them acting. They're just who they portray themselves to be. And that's what I saw from Greer Garson. She just was Mrs. Bindevert.
0: I haven't looked to see how often they really were paired together. I think she's typically thought of as a pair with Walter Pigeon, similar to how we think of William Powell and Myrna Loy or Bogey and Bacall. She had a small part in Goodbye, Mr. Chips, where she ends up playing uh, Walter Pigeon's wife in that film, though it's a much smaller role than it is here. And then, of course, there was a sequel to this made in 1950, which where they both reprised their roles. But outside of those three films, I'm not familiar with her work, and I hadn't seen any of those until we began doing this podcast.
1: Yeah, looking her up on the IMDb, she's got 45 credits. And in her Best Known Four, this is top. So it goes Mrs. Miniver, then she's Elizabeth Bennett in Pride and Prejudice from 1940. She was Paula in Random Harvest from the same year with second billing. And then she was Julia Packett in Julia Misbehaves in 1948. And her last credit was A Guest Spot on the Love Boat In 1982, she also had a number of appearances on Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In, so it does look like she ended up going into more TV work than films starting about the mid-1950s. So looking at how many movies she made per year versus her contemporaries, especially having won that Oscar in this year, because we haven't Mm -hmm. discussed it, but she not only won the Oscar, she holds the record for the longest acceptance speech at the Oscars, but... She didn't have as many movies per year as a lot of her contemporaries did. So I think she was being very choosy in the projects that she took on. Yeah, I was quite impressed with her here. And I would say that, yes, Greer Garson and Walter Pidgeon are probably two of the most recognizable. And then next would be Henry Travers, who a lot of people don't know so much by name. They know him more for playing Clarence, the guardian angel, in It's a Wonderful Life. So he is the one that that grew the rose that was named after Mrs. Miniver.
0: One of the delights of doing a podcast like this is discovering or rediscovering character actors like him to where you know them for one role or you have them in your mind for a couple of bit roles, but you start, when you're watching films of a particular era, you start seeing them more and more and more. He does a delightful job in this. I love his embarrassment at the end, to where he's too embarrassed to stand up and receive the prize for the Men of a Rose. It's of a different tone. I'm I'm a little bit more surprised sometimes that websites don't recommend don't recommend movies based off of pair pairings, um, because another film he was in that came out around the same time, it, it wouldn't be an episode of this show if we didn't somehow bring in a Hitchcock reference he was in. Shadow of a Doubt, where he plays the father to Teresa Wright's character, Charlie, in that film. And of course, here, they don't share much screen time, but they're both in Mrs. Miniver as well.
1: Yes, here, Teresa Wright plays Carol Belden. Yeah, I should watch that again. It's been about 10 years since I last saw Shadow of a Doubt, which is also the first time I've seen it. I haven't rewatched it. I should. This was very well done, and he nails that role. I'm wondering if that's part of what you said, what the adjustments they made after the war started. Because the, the one thing that irked me is that right at the start, we see this magnificent rose that he's grown and named after Mrs. Miniver. And then in the middle, the son goes off to join the RAF and they shorten his training course to eight months. And then after that eight month period, their rose show happens and that same rose looks almost the same. Right, And I... I, I double-checked online, and Roses typically stay in bloom seven to eight weeks, not seven to eight months, when there's probably at least nine months between the events. So I, I suspect that those edits might have included that eight-month training period. We'd have to go back to the novel and see if the, the novel takes place over that same span of time, or if it's shortened up a bit. But I could see for the emotional resonance, yeah, it is nice to, to see the moment where Vin joins the RAF, and then if he's going to be that pilot, well, you need time to get him in the air. Yeah, I don't know really what they, they could have done aside from have him with a full rose garden and say, well, I'm going to enter one of this strain and have a number of roses. So it's not exactly the same rose, but I don't know. That's, that's nitpicking. It, it, it doesn't work, but it's not so bad that it breaks the rest of the movie. Because this isn't about the rose so much as the emotional connections of the family and it's commentary on the class system where you have these of people who are judging each other. I mean, the, the grandmother Belford is saying, well, why do people keep trying to be better than their betters? They should know their place. And she's a firm believer that the classes should stay as they are, which is probably not an uncommon attitude for those in the uppermost class because, you know, things are working well for them. But then we also had Vin at the start judge people based solely on their class and He would not, the Vin at the beginning of the movie, would not have chosen to go stand next to the Lady Belford unless he did it just to piss her off. Whereas here he does it to comfort her, which was not what that Vin would have done at the beginning. So, you know, he may not have been classist in the sense of supporting the class structure, but he was classist in the sense that he would judge people based on their class.
0: That's so well done there. It's a hallmark of a great screenplay and great direction. When things feel earned and not much is made of them, but after Mrs. Minifer and Lady Belford have their confrontation, for want of a better word, where they discuss the engagement and she finally gets Lady Belford's approval. Once Vin and Carol are engaged, you see her soften to him. You know, Every time they're together and they leave, you know, she reminds him that he has to give her his kiss. So that it it totally makes sense at the end that they're both they are both members of the same family who love each other who are sharing this loss. He belongs over there with her.
1: So shall we move on to cataloging the awards from this year? Yep. Sure. So obviously this one The Outstanding Motion Picture Award, in competition with 49th Parallel, King's Row, The Magnificent Ambersons, The Pied Piper, Pride of the Yankees, Random Harvest, Talk of the Town, Wake Island, and Yankee Doodle Dandy. Best Director did go to William Wyler for Mrs. Miniver, up against the nominees from King's Row, Random Harvest, Wake Island, and Yankee Doodle Dandy. Best Actor went to James Cagney for Yankee Doodle Dandy. Up against Ronald Coleman for Random Harvest, Gary Cooper for Pride of the Yankees, Walter Pidgeon for Mrs. Miniver, and Monty Woolley for The Pied Piper. We already mentioned that Greer Garson won for Best Actress, and at least in my copy of the DVD, her record-setting acceptance speech of six and a half minutes is included as one of the bonus features. She beat out Betty Davis from Now Voyager, Katherine Hepburn from Woman of the Year, Rosalind Russell from My Sister Eileen, and Teresa Wright from Pride of the Yankees. Best Supporting Actor went to Van Heflin for Johnny Eager, and he beat out William Bendix from Wake Island, Walter Houston from Yankee Little Dandy, Frank Morgan from Tortilla Flat, and Henry Travers. Here in Mrs. Miniver is James Ballard. For the supporting cast, Carol Belden was played by Teresa Wright, and she won the award beating out Gladys Cooper from Now Voyager, Agnes Moorhead from The Magnificent Ambersons, Susan Peters from Random Harvest, and Dame May Whitty for her role as Lady Belden in Mrs. Miniver. So four award categories, five nominations for the acting here. Best Original Screenplay went to Michael Kanan and Ring Lardner Jr. for Woman of the Year. Best Screenplay overall went to Mrs. Miniver. So that's George Froschel, James Hilton, Claudine West, and Arthur Wimperis based on, oh, actually, looks like it, they were in newspaper columns rather than a book by Jan Struther, And it beat out the writers for 49th Parallel, Pride of the Yankees, Random Harvest, and The Talk of the Town. For Best Original Motion Picture Story, 49th Parallel won that one, up against Holiday Inn, Pride of the Yankees, Talk of the Town, and Yankee Blue Dandy. Now, Best Documentary seems to be a four-way tie, but there were a lot of nominees. So the four that won were... The Battle of Midway by the United States Navy, Kokoda Frontline by the Australian News and Information Bureau, Moscow Strikes Back by Art Kaino, and Prelude to War by the United States Army Special Services. And there were 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21 other nominations. So there were four winners out of 25
0: nominees. So just at a quick glance, how many of those were wartime documentaries, do you think?
1: Um, it looks like all four of the winners, plus, well, we've got Africa Prelude to Victory, Combat Report, Conquer by the Clock, The Grain That Built a Hemisphere, Henry Brown Farmer. So I'd say at least half just going purely by by the titles, possibly more because some of the other ones like that are... Maybe not necessarily, you know, the titles don't in, in specifically indicate that they're war films, but right. then you look and they're produced by the United States Office of War Information and things like that. So, yeah, possibly as much as 80%. So the best live-action short, short subject in one reel went to Speaking of Animals and Their Families by Paramount. The two-reel short subject went to Beyond the Line of Duty by Warner Brothers. Up against Don't Talk by MGM and Private Smith of the USA. So it looks like both of the two, or all of the two real short subjects were war films. There's a couple of the short subjects that were war films. For the best short subject cartoon, the winner was Der Führer's Face by Walt Disney. Beat out All Out for V, Blitzwolf, Jukebox Jamboree, Pigs in a Poke, and Tulip Shall Grow. So that seems like it's about half and half. The best scoring went to Now Voyager which won in a very large category. Looks like about 18 nominees in that one, but that one with a single winner. Best Scoring of a Musical Picture went to Yankee Doodle Dandy, and Best Original Song went to White Christmas from Holiday Inn. Best Sound Recording, Mrs. Miniver was one of the nominations. Yankee Doodle Dandy beat out Arabian Nights, Bambi, Flying Tigers, Friendly Enemies, The Gold Rush, Mrs. Miniver, once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Pride of the Yankees wrote to Morocco, This Above All and You Were Never Lovelier. In Best Art Direction, This Above All was the winner. That's for Art Direction Interior Black and White. Interior Color went to My Gal Sal. Best Black and White Cinematography went to Mrs. Miniver and Joseph Ruttenberg. Beating out King's Row, Magnificent Ambersons, Moontide, Pied Piper, Pride of the Yankees, Take a Letter Darling, Talk of the Town, Ten Gentlemen from the West, and This Above All. Best Colour Cinematography went to The Black Swan. Best Film Editing, Pride of the Yankees beat out Mrs. Miniver, Talk of the Town, This Above All, and Yankee Doodle Dandy. And Best Special Effects went to Reap the Wild Wind. In a category that looks like it's got about 10 or 12 nominations there. Yes, 10 of them. So, I don't know, on, on those ones, it's tough for me to judge how the Academy did, because I haven't watched a lot of the competition. There was nothing there that won where I think, how did that win? I just don't know if I would have chosen the same movie had I seen the whole category, but there's none there that I could say that was undeserving.
0: Yeah, I need to watch Random Harvest. I've seen or managed to see for this recording: The Magnificent Ambersons, Pride of the Yankees, and Yankee Doodle Dandy. Most of those I've seen in the past. I didn't rewatch for this recording. Out out of that lineup. Mrs. Miniver was definitely the best film of the year. None of the others that I'm familiar with have a reputation that would lead me to think otherwise. So, for example, I haven't seen King's Row or The Magnificent Ambersons, but just based off of their reputation, I, I have no concerns that the Academy made the wrong choice there.
1: Yeah, looking at sort of the general rankings, I would say, in the past, i found that letterboxed tends to be more aligned with my views and the critical views. Mm-hmm. And if we look at how things played out on Letterboxd, of all the nominees, the only one that outperforms Mrs. Miniver overall is The Magnificent Ambersons. So everything else of that year, you know, in- including Bambi, which is probably the most seen film of the year, I would think, mm-hmm. those are all ranked below Mrs. Miniver. Now, oddly, it's the Internet Movie Database viewers, the IMDb that would put it actually at fourth of the year. So they put it behind The Magnificent Ambersons, Pride of the Yankees, and Yankee Doodle Dandy. Now, some of that with Yankee Doodle Dandy may be because the average IMDb users tend to prefer uplifting endings. And while I haven't seen all of Yankee Doodle Dandy, I know it's a biography, so, you know, it may end with the natural end of George M. Cohen's life, but the footage I've seen of it, it does seem to be very upbeat. It's a far more playful Cagney than I'm used to from his gangster films, at the very least.
0: It is. And it it basically portrays him as being a very patriotic American and entertainer who scored World War One from a morale perspective, deciding to get back involved and score World War Two. And that's kind of how it ends. So it does have a much more uplifting ending. It doesn't even end with the death of George Cohen. Oh,
1: well, there you go. So that's probably a more uplifting ending than Pride of the Yankees, then? Yes. Given that, when you're telling the story of the life and career of Lou Gehrig, yeah, that's, it's hard to have a happy ending when you have a whole disease that is kind of unofficially named after you. So who would you recommend this to?
0: I would recommend it to, I was going to say fans of war films, but not war films from the perspective of films that portray like actual battles. I mean, if you're a fan, if you're a fan of The Flying Leathernecks or The Sands of Iwo Jima or a film like that, that that's not this film. But if you enjoy a film that shows maybe the effects of war on a family or even a culture, I would recommend it. I feel like we've seen a corner turn in the family drama or the generational saga from an academy perspective we've gone from trying to f- follow families in multiple generations over the course of decades to over the course of a handful of years or um a handful of months and that tighter focus i think has really benefited the films i'm going to blank on this but there, there is a film, Gary Oldman won Best Actor for it, where he played Winston Churchill that came out.
1: The Darkest Hours?
0: The, the Darkest Hours, thank you. That really focuses on how critical of a turning point in Churchill's political career the Battle of Dunkirk was. And I kept thinking of that film during that this section of Mrs. Miniver, so I feel like it would be paired nicely with that. I don't think there's a natural genre affinity, so I'm going to go back to what we said earlier. If you enjoyed Walter Pidgeon, Anger Garson, and this, go out and seek Goodbye, Mr. Chips. It's It covers a different aspect of British society, but it's another one of the kind of morale-building, stiff upper lip, this is what it means to be British in wartime type films go check out shadow of a doubt if you watched this and enjoyed treats Wright and um henry travers or conversely if you watch that film and enjoyed their performances there come and check mrs miniver out i would agree with that because
1: i'm again having a hard time trying to figure out who i would recommend this to this is just if you enjoy family drama and you're open to black and white movies, which I assume you are if you're listening to at least these early episodes of this podcast, then, yeah, this one is one to recommend. Like you are saying, it is... The war here is a backdrop. It's not the purpose. It's more the war at home than the war. So yeah, there's definitely a war going on, but don't avoid it if you would avoid, say, Saving Private Ryan, because you don't want to see them storming the beach. If you've got PTSD from service... You know, aside from maybe that segment in the middle with the the German pilot, there's really nothing here that might set you off just for that, or possibly that, that final sequence. Because yeah, most of the time, most of the actual military action we see is in the background. So I can think of maybe two or three battles that are happening, but aside from that very last one that takes Carol's life, the family are watching it from a distance, or they're sheltering in their bunker while they're being bombarded from above. And frankly, that bunker scene was fairly intense. I could see why the kids were freaked out. And it's very much showing, you know, what the toll has on the people, even if they're not out there on the front lines. That's one of the things that is uniquely European in this. Americans can make films about their participation in World War Two. And, you know, they you can't downplay their contributions without the all the major allies we had in World War II, without America's involvement, it probably would have had a very different outcome, at the very least been a much longer war, and quite possibly the other side would have won without the American contributions. But the Americans didn't have to worry about attacks on their own soil aside from a few minutes in Pearl Harbor. It's not like London getting bombed constantly or nearly constantly.
0: I would really be interested in Andy Leyland's impression of this film. Ho- hopefully most of our listeners know who Andy is. He's a fantastic podcaster. I, I know Blaine and I both listen to some of his shows. He- he's from just outside of Manchester, I believe, and he's frequently talked from a comic book perspective of he tends not to like American War comics, because the American portrayal of war, particularly World War II, doesn't line up with the experiences that he heard from, you know, his, his grandfathers. I I wonder what his impression of this film would be, because this isn't a Powell and Pressburger film towards a British-made film by British director about the British experience during the war. This is still very much an American view or interpretation, if you will, of that sense of British preservation. So I'd really be interested in what his take would be on this.
1: Yeah, I I certainly would. We should reach out to him and see if he's got anything to say. We have enough lead time that if he does record a piece for us, we'll probably drop it in near the end of the episode for our listeners to hear. Uh, Maybe he'll just choose to write an email. Who knows? Maybe he won't have seen it and will have no opinions. But, yeah, we can certainly reach out to him. So if there's nothing else, we should talk about maybe what we're going to be discussing next month. And, I don't know, do you think it's worth tracking down next month's winner?
0: It is. I think we are going to a little cafe in French occupied Morocco next month.
1: Yeah, next month we are going to be discussing Casablanca, which actually had a release date. At least the worldwide release was in the same year as Mrs. Miniver, but the Los Angeles release was postponed until 1943. So they were not competing for that Oscars. Casablanca was up the following year. So yeah, join us next month for Casablanca, directed by Michael Curtiz, who directed Yankee Doodle Dandy, as well as... Humphrey Bogart, Ingrid Bergman, we've got a number of quite recognizable names coming up. So, join us for that, and thank you for listening, and if anyone else, not just Andy Leyland, if anyone has feedback or comments on this episode or any other, you can visit our anchor.fm page, you should find it in the show notes of the podcast, and you can actually leave a voicemail directly through the website. And Trey and I will be doing feedback episodes. You could also email us at 99years100films at gmail.com. And we will be recording specific feedback episodes that we could respond a little more timely because we are recording these pretty far in advance right now. Thank you for listening.
0: Thanks, everyone. My mom always said life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Please, sir. I want some more.